Chapter Nine, Part One of the Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Nine: The Philippics, Part One. Side note: B.C. Forty-four, Itat Sixty-three. Cicero was soon driven by the violence of Antony's conduct to relinquish the idea of moderate language, and was ready enough to pick up the gauntlet thrown down for him. From this moment to the last scene of his life it was all the fury of battle and the shout of victory, and then the scream of despair. Antony, when he read Cicero's speech, the first Philippic, the language of which was no doubt instantly sent to him, seems to have understood at once that he must either vanquish Cicero or be vanquished by him. He appreciated to the letter the ironically cautious language in which his conduct was exposed. He had not chosen to listen to Cicero, but was most anxious to get Cicero to listen to him. Those advocates of whom Cicero had spoken would be around him, and at a nod, or perhaps without a nod, would do to Cicero as Brutus and Cassius had done to Caesar. The last meeting of the Senate had been on the 2nd of September. When it was over, Antony, we are told, went down to his villa at Tivoli, and there devoted himself for above a fortnight to the getting up of a speech by which he might silence, or at any rate answer, Cicero. Nor did he leave himself to his own devices, but took to himself a master of eloquence, who might teach him when to make use of his arms, where to stamp his feet, and in what way to throw his toga about with a graceful passion. He was about forty at this time, and in the full flower of his manhood, yet for such a purpose he did not suppose himself to know all that lessons would teach him in the art of invective. There he remained, mouthing out his phrases in the presence of his preceptor, till he had learned by heart all that the preceptor knew. Then he summoned Cicero to meet him in the Senate on the 19th. This Cicero was desirous of doing, but was prevented by his friends who were afraid of the advocates. There is extant a letter from Cicero to Cassius, in which he states it to be well known in Rome that Antony had declared that he, Cicero, had been the author of Caesar's death, in order that Caesar's old soldiers might slay him. There were other senators, he says, who did not dare to show themselves in the senate-house, Piso and Servilius and Cotta. Antony came down and made his practised oration against Cicero. The words of his speech have not been preserved, but Cicero has told us the manner of it and some of the phrases which he used. The authority is not very good, but we may imagine from the results that his story is not far from the truth. From first to last it was one violent tirade of abuse, which he seemed to vomit forth from his jewels, rather than to speak after the manner of a Roman consular. Such is Cicero's description. It has been said of Antony that we hear of him only from his enemies. He left behind him no friend to speak for him, and we have heard of him certainly from one enemy. But the tidings are of a nature to force upon us a belief in the evil which Cicero spoke of him. Had he been a man of decent habits of life and of an honest purpose, would Cicero have dared to say to the Romans respecting him the words which he produced, not only in the second Philippic which was unspoken, 
but also in the twelve which followed. The record of him as far as it goes is altogether bad. Plutarch tells us that he was handsome and a good soldier, but altogether vicious. Plutarch is not a biographer whose word is to be taken as to details, but he is generally correct in his estimate of character. Tacitus tells us but little about him as direct history, but mentions him ever in the same tone. Tacitus knew the feeling of Rome regarding him. Paterculus speaks specially of his fraud, and breaks out into strong repudiation of the murder of Cicero. Valerius Maximus, in his anecdotes, mentions him slightingly, as an evil man is spoken of who has forced himself into notice. Virgil has stamped his name with everlasting ignominy, sequiturque nefas Egyptia conux. I can think of no Roman writer who has named him with honour. He was a Roman of the day, what Rome had made him, brave, greedy, treacherous, and unpatriotic. Cicero again was absent from the Senate, but was in Rome when Antony attacked him. We learn from a letter to Cornificius that Antony left the city shortly afterwards, and went down to Brundisium to look after the legions which had come across from Macedonia, with which Cicero asserts that he intends to tyrannise over them all in Rome. He then tells his correspondent that young Octavius has just been discovered in an attempt to have Antony murdered, but that Antony, having found the murderer in his house, had not dared to complain. He seems to think that Octavius had been right. The state of things was such that men were used to murder, but this story was probably not true. He passes on to declare in the next sentence that he receives such consolation from philosophy as to be able to bear all the ills of fortune. He himself goes to Pitili, and there he writes the second Philippic. It is supposed to be the most violent piece of invective ever produced by human ingenuity and human anger. The readers of it must, however, remember that it was not made to be spoken, was not even written, as far as we are aware, to be shown to Antony or to be published to the world. We do not even know that Antony ever saw it. There has been an idea prevalent that Antony's anger was caused by it, and that Cicero owed to it his death but the surmise is based on probability, not at all on evidence. Cicero, when he heard what Antony had said of him, appears to have written all the evil he could say of his enemy, in order that he might send it to Atticus. It contained rather what he could have published, than what he did intend to publish. He does indeed suggest in the letter which accompanied the treatise when sent to Atticus, in some only half-intelligible words, that he hopes the time may come when the speech shall find its way freely even into Seeker's house. But we gather even from that his intention that it should have no absolutely public circulation. He had struggled to be as severe as he knew how, but he had done it, as it were, with a halter round his neck. And for Antony's anger, the anger which afterwards produced the prescription, there came to be cause enough beyond this. Before that day he had endeavoured to stir up the whole empire against Antony, and had all but succeeded. It has been alleged that Cicero again shows his cowardice by writing and not speaking his oration, and also by writing it only for private distribution. 
If he were a coward, why did he write it at all? If he were a coward, why did he hurry into this contest with Antony? If he be blamed because his Philippic was anonymous, how do the anonymous writers of to-day escape? If, because he wrote it and did not speak it, what shall be said of the party writers of to-day? He was a coward, say his accusers, because he avoided a danger. Have they thought of the danger which he did run when they bring those charges against him? Of what was the nature of the fight? Did they remember how many Romans in public life had been murdered during the last dozen years? We are well aware how far custom goes, and that men become used to the fear of violent death. Cicero was now habituated to that fear, and was willing to face it. But not on that account are we to imagine that, with his eyes open, he was to be supposed always ready to rush into immediate destruction. To write a scurrilous attack such as the Second Philippic is a bad exercise for the ingenuity of a great man, but so is any anonymous satire. It is so in regard to our own times, which have received the benefit of all antecedent civilization. Cicero, being in the midst of those heartless Romans, is expected to have the polished manners and high feelings of a modern politician. I have hardly a right to be angry with his critics, because by his life he went so near to justify the expectation. He begins by asking his supposed hearers how it has come to pass that during the last twenty years the Republic had had no enemy who was not also his enemy. And you, Antony, whom I have never injured by a word, why is it that more brazen-faced than Catiline, more fierce than Clodius, you should attack me with your maledictions? Will your enmity against me be a recommendation for you to every evil citizen in Rome? Why does not Antony come down among us to-day, he says, as though he were in the Senate and Antony were away? He gives a birthday fete in his garden. To whom, I wonder? I will name no one. To Formio, perhaps, or Gnatho, or Balion. Oh, incredible baseness! Lust and impudence not to be borne! These were the vile knaves of the Roman comedy, the Nims, Pistols, and Bobadils. Your consulship, no doubt, will be salutary, but minded only evil. You talk of my verses, he says, Antony having twitted him with the cadent arma togai. I will only say that you do not understand them or any other. Clodius was killed by my counsels, was he? What would men have said had they seen him running from you through the forum, you with your drawn sword, and him escaping up the stairs of the bookseller's shop? It was by my advice that Caesar was killed. I fear, O conscript fathers, lest I should seem to have employed some false witness to flatter me with praises which do not belong to me. Who has ever heard me mentioned as having been conversant with that glorious affair? Among those who did do the deed, whose name has been hidden, or indeed is not most widely known? Some have been inclined to boast that they were there, though they were absent, but not one who was present has ever endeavoured to conceal his name. You deny that I have had legacies? I wish it were true, for then my friends might still be living. But where have you learned that, seeing that I have inherited twenty million sesterces? I am happier in this than you. 
no one but a friend has made me his heir. Lucius Rubrius Cassinus, whom you never even saw, has named you. He here refers to a man over whose property Antony was supposed to have obtained control fraudulently. Did he know of you whether you were a white man or a negro? Would you mind telling me what height Tusalius stood? Here he names another of whose property Antony is supposed to have obtained possession illegally. I believe all you know of him is what farms he had. Do you bear in mind, he says, that you were a bankrupt as soon as you had become a man? Do you remember your early friendship with Curio, and the injuries you did his father? Here it is impossible to translate literally, but after speaking as he had done very openly, he goes on. But I must omit the iniquities of your private life. There are things I cannot repeat here. You are safe, because the deeds you have done are too bad to be mentioned. But let us look at the affairs of your public life. I will just go through them, which he does, laying bare as well as he knew how to do every past act. When you had been made quaestor, you flew at once to Caesar. You knew that he was the only refuge for poverty, debt, wickedness, and vice. Then, when you had gorged upon his generosity and your own plunderings, which indeed you spent faster than you got it, you betook yourself instantly to the tribunate. It is you, Antony, you who supplied Caesar with an excuse for invading his country. Caesar had declared at the Rubicon that the tribunate had been violated in the person of Antony. I will say nothing here against Caesar, though nothing can excuse a man for taking up arms against his country, but of you it has to be confessed that you were the cause. He has been a very Helen to us Trojans. He has brought back many a wretched exile, but has forgotten altogether his own uncle, Cicero's colleague in the consulship, who had been banished for plundering his province. We have seen this tribune of the people carried through the town on a British war-chariot. His lictors with their laurels went before him. In the midst, on an open litter, was carried an actress. When you came back from Thessaly with your legions to Brundisium, you did not kill me. Oh, what a kindness! You, with those jaws of yours, with that huge chest, with that body like a gladiator, drank so much wine at Hippia's marriage, that in the sight of all Rome you were forced to vomit. When he had seized Pompey's property, he rejoiced like some stage actor who in a play is as poor as poverty, and then suddenly becomes rich. All his wine, the great weight of silver, the costly furniture and rich dresses, in a few days, where were they all? A Charybdis, do I call him? He swallowed them all like an entire ocean. Then he accuses him of cowardice and cruelty in the Pharsalian wars, and compares him most injuriously with Dolabella. Do you remember how Dolabella fought for you in Spain, when you were getting drunk at Narbo? And how did you get back from Narbo? He has asked as to my return to the city. I have explained to you, O conscript fathers, how I had intended to be here in January so as to be of some service to the Republic. You inquire how I did get back? In daylight, not in the dark as you did, with Roman shoes on and a Roman toga. 
not in barbaric boots and an old cloak. When Caesar returned from Spain, you again pushed yourself into his intimacy. Not a brave man, we should say, but still strong enough for his purposes. Caesar did always this, that if there were a man ruined, steeped in debt up to his ears in poverty, a base, needy, bold man, that was the man whom he could receive into his friendship. This, as to Caesar, was undoubtedly true. Recommended in this way, you were told to declare yourself consul. Then he describes the way in which he endeavoured to prevent the nomination of Dolabella to the same office. Caesar had said that Dolabella should be consul, but when Caesar was dead, this did not suit Antony. When the tribes had been called in their centuries to vote, Antony, not understanding what form of words he ought to have used as augur to stop the ceremony, had blundered. "'Would you not call him a very Lilius?' says Cicero. Lilius had made a name for himself among augurs for excellence. "'Miserable that you are, you throw yourself at Caesar's feet, asking only permission to be his slave.' You sought for yourself that state of slavery which it has ever been easy for you to endure. Had you any command from the Roman people to ask the same for them? Oh, that eloquence of yours, when naked you stood up to harangue the people! Who ever saw a fouler deed than that, or one more worthy scourges? Has Tarquin suffered for this? Have Spurius Cassius, Melius, and Marcus Marlius suffered? that after many ages a king should be set up in Rome by Mark Antony. With abuse of a similar kind he goes on to the end of his declamation, when he again professes himself ready to die at his post in defence of the Republic. That he now made up his mind so to die should it become necessary, we may take for granted, but we cannot bring ourselves to approve of the storm of abuse under which he attempted to drown the memory and name of his antagonist. So virulent a torrent of words, all seeming, as we read them, to have been poured out in rapid utterances by the keen energy of the moment, astonish us when we reflect that it was the work of his quiet moments. That he should have prepared such a task in the seclusion of his closet is marvellous. It has about it the very ring of sudden passion. But it must be acknowledged that it is not palatable. It is more Roman and less English than anything we have from Cicero, except his abuse of Piso, with whom he was again now half reconciled. But it was solely on behalf of his country that he did it. He had grieved when Caesar had usurped the functions of the government, but in his grief he had respected Caesar, and had felt that he might best carry on the contest by submission. But when Caesar was dead and Antony was playing tyrant, his very soul rebelled. Then he sat down to prepare his first instalment of keen personal abuse, adding word to word and phrase to phrase, till he had built up this unsavoury monument of vituperation. It is by this that Antony is now known to the world. Plutarch makes no special mention of the second Philippic. In his life of Antony he does not allude to these orations at all, but in that of Cicero he tells us how Antony had ordered that right hand to be brought to him with which Cicero had written his Philippics. The young Octavius of Shakespeare 
had now taken the name of Octavianus, Caius Julius Caesar Octavianus, and had quarrelled to the knife with Antony. He had assumed that he had been adopted by Caesar, and now demanded all the treasures his uncle had collected as his own. Antony, who had already stolen them, declared that they belonged to the state. At any rate, there was cause enough for quarrelling among them, and they were enemies. Each seems to have brought charges of murder against the other, and each was anxious to obtain possession of the soldiery. Seeing as we see now the period in Rome of which we are writing, every safeguard of the Republic gone, all law trampled underfoot, consuls, praetors, and tribunes not elected but forced upon the state, all things in disorder, the provinces becoming the open prey of the greediest plunderer, it is apparent enough that there could be no longer any hope for a Cicero. The marvel is that the everyday affairs of life should have been carried on with any reference to the law. When we are told that Antony stole Caesar's treasures and paid his debts with them, we are inclined to ask why he had paid his debts at all. But Cicero did hope. In his whole life there is nothing more remarkable than the final vitality with which he endeavoured to withstand the coming deluge of military despotism. Nor in all history is there anything more wonderful than the capacity of power to re-establish itself, as is shown by the orderly empire of Augustus growing out of the disorder left by Caesar. One is reminded by it of the impotency of a reckless heir to bring to absolute ruin the princely property of a great nobleman brought together by the skill of many careful progenitors. A thing will grow to be so big as to be all but indestructible. It is like that tower of Caecilia Metella against which the storms of twenty centuries have beaten in vain. Looking at the state of the Roman Empire when Cicero died, who would not declare its doom? But it did re-trick its beams, not so much by the hand of one man, Augustus, as by the force of the concrete power collected within it. Quod non imber edax, non aquilo impotens posit diruere. Cicero, with patriotic gallantry, thought that even yet there might be a chance for the old republic, thought that by his eloquence, by his vehemence of words, he could turn men from fraud to truth, and from the lust of plundering a province, to a desire to preserve their country. Of Antony now he despaired, but he still hoped that his words might act upon this young Caesar's heart. The youth was as callous as though he had already ruled a province for three years. No Roman was ever more cautious, more wise, more heartless, more able to pick his way through blood to a throne than the young Augustus. Cicero fears Octavian, as we must now call him, and knows that he can only be restrained by the keeping of power out of his hands. Writing to Atticus from Arpinum, he says, I agree altogether with you. If Octavian get power into his hands, he will insist upon the tyrant's decrees much more thoroughly than he did when the Senate sat in the temple of Tellus. Everything then will be done in opposition to Brutus. But if he be conquered, then see how intolerable would be the dominion of Antony. In the same letter he speaks of the Deoficis, which he has just written. In his next and last epistle to his old friend, 
he congratulates himself on having been able at last to quarrel with Dolabella. Dolabella had turned upon him in the end, bought by Antony's money. He then returns to the subject of Octavian, and his doubts as to his loyalty. He has been asked to pledge himself to Octavian, but has declined till he shall see how the young man will behave when Casca becomes candidate for the tribunate. If he show himself to be Casca's enemy, Casca having been one of the conspirators, Cicero will know that he is not to be trusted. Then he falls into a despairing mood, and declares that there is no hope. Even Hippocrates was unwilling to bestow medicine on those to whom it could avail nothing. But he will go to Rome, into the very jaws of the danger. It is less base for such as I am to fall publicly than privately. With these words, almost the last written by him to Atticus, this correspondence is brought to an end, the most affectionate, the most trusting, and the most open ever published to the world as having come from one man to another. No letters more useful to the elucidation of character were ever written, but when read for that purpose, they should be read with care, and should hardly be quoted till they have been understood. The struggles for the provinces were open and acknowledged. Under Caesar, Decimus Brutus had been nominated for Cisalpine Gaul, Marcus Brutus for Macedonia, and Cassius for Syria. It will be observed that these three men were the most prominent among the conspirators. Since that time, Antony and Dolabella had obtained votes of the people to alter the arrangement. Antony was to go to Macedonia, and Dolabella to Syria. This was again changed when Antony found that Decimus had left Rome to take up his command. He sent his brother Caius to Macedonia, and himself claimed to be governor of Cisalpine Gaul. Hence there were two Roman governors for each province, and in each case each governor was determined to fight for the possession. Sidenote, B.C. 44, Itat 63 Antony hurried out of Rome before the end of the year with the purpose of hindering Decimus from the occupation of the north of Italy, and Cicero went up to Rome determined to take a part in the struggle which was imminent. The Senate had been summoned for the 19th of December, and attended in great numbers. Then it was that he spoke the third Philippic, and in the evening of the same day he spoke the fourth to the people. It should be understood that none of these speeches were heard by Antony. Cicero had at this time become the acknowledged chief of the Republican Party, having drifted into the position which Pompey had so long filled. Many of Caesar's friends, frightened by his death, or rather cowed by the absence of his genius, had found it safer to retreat from the Caesarian Party, of which the Antonys, with Dolabella, the cutthroats and gladiators of the empire, had the command. Hirtius and Pansa, with Balbus and Oppius, were among them. They, at this moment, were powerful in Rome. The legions were divided, some with Antony, some with Octavian, and some with Decimus Brutus. The greater number were with Antony, whom they hated for his cruelty, but were with him because the mantle of Caesar's power had fallen onto his shoulders. It was felt by Cicero that if he could induce Octavian to act with him, the Republic might be again established. He would surely have influence enough to keep the lad from hankering after his great-uncle's pernicious power. He was aware that the Dominion did in fact belong to the owner of the soldiers, 
but he thought that he could control this boy officer, and thus have his legions at the command of the Republic. The Senate had been called together, nominally for the purpose of desiring the consuls of the year to provide a guard for its own safety. Cicero makes it an occasion for perpetuating the feeling against Antony, which had already become strong in Rome. He breaks out into praise of Octavian, whom he calls this young Caesar, almost a boy, tells them what divine things the boy had already done, and how he had drawn away from the rebels those two indomitable legions, the Martia and the Fourth. Then he proceeds to abuse Antony. Tarquinius, the man whose name was most odious to Romans, had been unendurable as a tyrant, though himself not a bad man. But Antony's only object is to sell the empire and to spend the price. Antony had convoked the Senate for November, threatening the senators with awful punishment should they have sent themselves. But when the day came, Antony, the consul, had himself fled. He not only pours out the vials of his wrath, but of his ridicule upon Antony's head, and quotes his bungling words. He gives instances of his imprudence, and his impotence, and of his greed. Then he again praises the young Caesar, and the two consuls for the next year, and the two legions, and Decimus Brutus, who is about to fight the battle of the Republic for them in the north of Italy, and votes that the necessary guard be supplied. In the same evening he addresses the people in his fourth Philippic. He again praises the lad and the two legions, and again abuses Antony. No one can say after this day that he hid his anger, or was silent from fear. He congratulates the Romans on their patriotism, vain congratulations, and encourages them to make new efforts. He bids them rejoice that they have a hero such as Decimus Brutus to protect their liberties, and almost that they have such an enemy as Antony to conquer. It seems that his words, few as they were, perhaps because they were so few, took hold of the people's imaginations, so that they shouted to him that he had on that day a second time saved his country, as he reminds them afterwards. From this time forward we are without those intimate and friendly letters which we have had with us as our guide through the last twenty-one years of Cicero's life. For though we have a large body of correspondence written during the last year of his life, which are genuine, they are written in altogether a different style from those which have gone before. They are for the most part urgent appeals to those of his political friends to whom he can look for support in his views, often to those to whom he looked in vain. They are passionate prayers for the performance of a public duty, and as such are altogether to the writer's credit. His letters to Plancus are beautiful in their patriotism, as are also those to Decimus Brutus. When we think of his age, of his zeal, of his earnestness, and of the dangers which he ran, we hardly know how sufficiently to admire the public spirit with which at such a crisis he had taken upon himself to lead the party. But our guide to his inner feelings is gone. There are no further letters to tell us of every doubt at his heart. We think of him as some stalwart commander left at home to arrange the affairs of the war, while the less experienced men were sent to the van. There is also a book of letters published as having passed between Cicero and Junius Brutus. The critics have generally united in condemning them as spurious, 
they are at any rate, if genuine, cold and formal in their language. Side note, B.C. 43, Aetat 64. Antony had proceeded into Cisalpine Gaul to drive out of the province the consul named by the people to govern it. The nomination of Decimus had in truth been Caesar's nomination, but the right of Decimus to rule was at any rate better than that of any other claimant. He had been appointed in accordance with the power then in existence, and his appointment had been confirmed by the decree of the Senate sanctioning all Caesar's acts. It was, after all, a question of simple power, for Caesar had overridden every legal form. It became necessary, however, that they who were in power in Rome should decide. The consuls Hirtius and Panza had been Caesar's friends, and had also been the friends of Antony. They had not the trust in Antony which Caesar had inspired, but they were anxious to befriend him, or rather not to break with him. When the Senate met, they called on one Futius Calenus, who was Antony's friend and Panza's father-in-law, first to offer his opinion. He had been one of Caesar's consuls, appointed for a month or two, and was now chosen for the honourable part of first spokesman as being a consular senator. He was for making terms with Antony, and suggested that a deputation of three senators should be sent to him, with a message calling upon him to retire. The object probably was to give Antony time, or rather to give Octavian time to join with Antony if it suited him. Others spoke in the same sense, and then Cicero was desired to give his opinion. This was the fifth Philippic. He is all for war with Antony, or rather he will not call it war, but a public breach of the peace which Antony has made. He begins mildly enough, but warms with his subject as he goes on. Should they send ambassadors to a traitor to his country? Let him return from Mutina. I keep the old Latin name, which is preserved for us in that of Modena. Let him cease to contend with Decimus. Let him depart out of Gaul. It is not fit that we should send to implore him to do so. We should by force compel him. We are not sending messengers to Hannibal, who, if Hannibal would not obey, might be desired to go on to Carthage. Whither shall the men go if Antony refuses to obey them? but it is of no use. With eloquent words he praises Octavian and the two legions and Decimus. He praises even the coward Lepidus, who was in command of legions, and was now governor of Gaul beyond the Alps and of northern Spain, and proposes that the people should put up to him a gilt statue on horseback, so important was it to obtain, if possible, his services. Alas, it was impossible that such a man should be moved by patriotic motives. Lepidus was soon to go with the winning side, and became one of the second triumvirate, with Antony and Octavian. Cicero's eloquence was on this occasion futile. At this sitting the Senate came to no decision, but on the third day afterwards they decreed that the senators Servius Sulpicius, Lucius Piso, and Lucius Philippus should be sent to Antony. The honours which he had demanded for Lepidus and the others were granted, but he was outvoted in regard to the ambassadors. On the 4th of January, Cicero again addressed the people in the Forum. His task was very difficult. 
He wished to give no offence to the Senate, and yet was anxious to stir the citizens and to excite them to a desire for immediate war. The Senate, he told them, had not behaved disgracefully, but had temporised. The war, unfortunately, must be delayed for those twenty days necessary for the going and coming of the ambassadors. The ambassadors could do nothing, but still they must wait. In the meantime he will not be idle. For them, the Roman people, he will work and watch with all his experience, with diligence almost above his strength, to repay them for their faith in him. When Caesar was with them, they had had no choice but obedience. So much the times were out of joint. If they submit themselves to be slaves now, it will be their own fault. Then, in general language, he pronounces an opinion, which was the general Roman feeling of the day. It is not permitted to the Roman people to become slaves, that people whom the immortal gods have willed to rule all nations of the earth. So he ended the sixth Philippic, which, like the fourth, was addressed to the people. All the others were spoken in the Senate. He writes to Decimus at Mutina about this time a letter full of hope, of hope which we can see to be genuine. Recruits are being raised in all Italy, if that can be called recruiting, which is in truth a spontaneous rushing into arms of the entire population. He expects letters telling him what our Hirtius is doing, and what my young Caesar. Hirtius and Pansa, the consuls of the year, though they had been of Caesar's party and made consuls by Caesar, were forced to fight for the Republic. They had been on friendly terms with Cicero, and they doubted Antony. Hirtius had now followed the army, and Pansa was about to do so. They both fell in the battle that was fought at Mutina, and no one now can accuse them of want of loyalty. But my Caesar, on whose behalf Cicero made so many sweet speeches, for whose glory he was so careful, whose early republican principles he was so anxious to direct, made his terms with Antony on the first occasion. At that time Cicero wrote to Plancus, consul-elect for the next year, and places before his eyes a picture of all that he can do for the Republic. Lay yourself out, yes, I pray you, by the immortal gods, for that which will bring you to the height of glory and renown. At the end of January, or beginning of February, he again addressed the Senate on the subject of the embassy, a matter altogether foreign from that which it had been convoked to discuss. To Cicero's mind there was no other subject at the present moment fit to occupy the thoughts of a Roman senator. We have met together to settle something about the Appian Way, and something about the coinage. The mind revolts from such little cares, torn by greater matters. The ambassadors are expected back, two of them at least, for Sulpicius had died on his road. He cautions the Senate against receiving with quiet composure such an answer as Antony will probably send them. Why do I, I who am a man of peace, refuse peace? Because it is base, because it is full of danger, because peace is impossible. Then he proceeds to explain that it is so. What a disgrace would it be that Antony, after so many robberies, after bringing back banished comrades, after selling the taxes of the state, putting up kingdoms to auction, 
shall rise up on the consular bench and address a free senate. Can you have an assured peace while there is an Antony in the state, or many Antonys? Or how can you be at peace with one who hates you, as does he? Or how can he be at peace with those who hate him, as do you? You have such an opportunity, he says at last, as never fell to the lot of any. You are able, with all senatorial dignity, with all the zeal of the knights, with all the favour of the Roman people, now to make the Republic free from fear and danger, once and for ever. Then he thus ends his speech. About those things which have been brought before us, I agree with Servilius. That is the seventh Philippic. End of chapter 9, part 1